Good morning and welcome to our live broadcast at First Presbyterian Church. It is a joy to come into your home today with good news about God who loves you. We are located in beautiful Uptown Columbus on the corner of 11th and 1st. We would love for you to join us for worship or just stop by and say hello. At First Presbyterian Church, we welcome you with grace and gratitude for God's love. Our first scripture this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions, and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends, but as for the prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childless ways. For now we see in a mirror, dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I have fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, and the greatest of these is love. The word of the Lord. Our second passage is taken from the Gospel of Luke. We are in chapter 4, verses, I'm going to read 20 through 30. Now, this kind of starts in the middle of an already existing passage, about halfway through, where Jesus is reading the scroll at the synagogue in his hometown to his home people where he grew up. Listen now for the word of the Lord. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, Is this not Joseph's son? He said to them, doubtless you will quote to me the proverb, doctor, cure yourself, and you will say, do here also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. And he said, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown, but the truth is 
There were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow in Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, they drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill in which their town was built, so that they might hurl him off of the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is what I would like you to do. Please stand where you are. What I'm about to say is one of the most heretical things that has ever been said from the pulpit at First Presbyterian Church. I would like to ask you to change your seat. Go. If for you... Mobility is an issue. Please stay where you are. If you're in the back, come forward. If you're in the forward, come back. Switch sections. Find someplace new. Choir, y'all are okay where you are. Don't say hello. Don't welcome one another. There shall be no talking. When you get there, have a seat. That's a little weird, isn't it? Y'all are a little different. It throws me off because I know exactly where y'all are. So I'm trying to set up a little of the dynamic that we see in this story. Jesus' home crowd got mad with him and chased him to a hill in order to kill him. I saw online someone said, this was the worst sermon ever. Why? Because they tried to kill him after he delivered it. I have done many stinky sermons in my day. I know, it's hard to believe. But never has the congregation afterwards, we'll see how we do today, has any group come after me to murder me after the service. This is the setting. So we're in early Luke. We're in the fourth chapter. So far, all we have seen is Jesus being born, the the birth story, Christmas. Jesus has been baptized, and then right after, the Holy Spirit chases him out in the wilderness for 40 days where he is tempted by Satan in the wilderness. He lives and defies Satan's temptations, three temptations, and uses Scripture to stand tall and not to give in, those cases. And almost immediately, right before this passage, the only thing Scripture says is he had been moving around and preaching in different synagogues, and now he has come home. 
So we don't know exactly how many miracles had been done. We don't exactly know what his home church, synagogue, knew about him, but they would have known. So he was out for a while. He was traveling. He had already spoken in multiple synagogues. It's what Luke's gospel says. So they would have been excited to have him come home. They would have been excited to hear him and say, Jesus is coming back. Everybody would have been there. It was tradition for Scripture to be read and some thought dialogue, some reflection, just like we do. And in the first part, all is well. Jesus is home with the people he grew up with. And he reads from the scroll of Isaiah that says that he has come to release the captives of slavery. I've come to release those who are slaves. In this passage, they call what they used to call a jubilee, which meant every seven years and then once every 50 years. And the idea of that time was that every six years, there would be a jubilee. And that means that if you sold your land, it would be returned back to you. Those who were indentured servants and slaves in that time would be freed, both in that seventh year and in the 50th year. So that's the context with which Jesus reads, except he reads all this freedom of the captives and stands up and says, you have heard this fulfilled today in your hearing. And so far, all is well. They are excited. So far, they are, as they say, amazed at the gracious words that have come from his mouth. They are not upset yet. Even though Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah, they are with him. They are excited. Again, they may have heard already something different is happening and Christ is doing something new. Yay, this is our guy. And it's at this point that if Jesus had just left it there, all would be well, all would be happy. Even if they fully didn't understand who he was, they would have given him the benefit of the doubt because he's from their church family. But he didn't. Jesus decided to poke him in the eye a little bit. Again, up to this point, they even say, well, wait, isn't, is this not Joseph's son? And we often leave that as a, two ways to look at that. Now, what is this punk that we've always known? How does he dare to stand up and claim to be the Messiah or claim to be claiming this mantle? Except, as I said before, there's no reason for that. They're not upset yet. For them, it would have been, oh my gosh, are you listening? These gracious words that Jesus, our friend Jesus, is saying. Can you believe it? This is Jesus that we have always known. 
Can you believe that this is the same Jesus that was Joseph's son doing these miraculous things? This is the same kid that we used to walk, play soccer in elementary school. He's the same kid that we used to buy the pita and hummus for a fundraiser for the Young Messiahs Club. He's the one who played trombone in the Nazareth High School Band. And now he's standing up in all of this great stuff. Joseph's son, wow, amazing. But then Jesus goes farther. He says, guess what? He said, according to the Hebrew Bible, there were a few cases where Elijah and Elisha, both in 1 and 2 Kings, respectively, Elisha, one of the great prophets of the Old Testament, and Elisha, his protege that then becomes one of the major, major prophets as well, there were two occasions that Jesus lifts up and he says, you know what? I didn't just come for the house of Israel. I came for a bigger picture. And so Elijah comes and talks about a widow in Sidon who was healed. Sidon is way up north, not even in the neighborhood of the house of Israel. Gentiles, pagans. And Elisha, in a similar vein, talks about Naaman, who was a Syrian. So in Syria, he was a military leader who was a threat to Israel militarily. And he said, well, you know what? There were some Gentiles and there were a lot of people in Israel, and God could have helped them, but God didn't. God helped the pagan. God helped the Gentile. And this military leader, Naaman, didn't even want help, but was convinced by his servants to go and wash himself seven times in the river, and he was healed and became a believer. But a Gentile and a pagan. And they said, guess what? There were all kinds of people who were in need in the house of Israel. God didn't help them. God helped these others. This is when they get mad. Because in that time, they were doing the right thing. God had told them in their Hebrew Bible, in the Torah, that the Gentiles were not clean. They were to be avoided at all costs. They were not to be associated with. They were to stay with their own people, their own kind. And for Jesus to say it was God who took care of them and didn't take care of the house of Israel was nothing short of blasphemous. And they were right to be angry. All they had known is what they had learned, what God told them. But Jesus was doing something different. They had every right to be angry. So how did they respond? Well, if you look at your bulletin, you see an artist's rendering of Jesus being then pushed out to this hilltop and trying to push Jesus over the hill where he will die, which again 
was what God had told them initially. If you look at Deuteronomy 13, 5, it says false prophets must be killed. And for Jesus to say what he did about those who were unclean, that God might have a preference or that they're even in the same breath as our holy God, would have placed him in the false Messiah category. So they all got angry. At this point, it didn't matter that Jesus grew up there, was a hometown boy. And they ran him to the cliff, and they sought to throw him over and kill him. And the wording is great at this point. It says, and he left in the midst of them and went on his way. Now, when you look, he's right there on the cliff. And it's as if Jesus says, I ain't got time for all that. I got stuff to do. And we don't know if he disappeared and used some kind of power so they didn't see him, whether he changed his robe so they didn't know, ran through, whatever it was, he was just beginning his ministry. He wasn't yet ready to give himself over and just kind of went silently among them to do his ministry. So what we are learning today is that anger sometimes can be okay. We know that. Anger itself is not a sin unless it starts to take us over, unless it starts to harm others and ourselves, in which case, yes, it does become sinful. But these people were right to seek to be faithful, but to also respond to what Jesus was saying to them. The sermon title, Jesus said what now? Jesus said what? We're okay with the parts of Jesus speaking to us where we claim the grace, the love, the support, the inspiration that Christ walks with us in this life and into the next, and all that is right on. Where we have a harder time is when Jesus is talking and it's more difficult. It is pushing us to change those things that keep us from God. We are being judged and found wanting in our relationship with God. Should we be mad at that? It's okay if you do. If you read the Psalms, you see many of them are from a perspective of anger. So many of them say, God, I'm surrounded by my enemies, where are you? Or fools say in their hearts, there is no God, show them, show them. Or I've been faithful, why aren't you helping me? I need your help. I'm sinking, I'm up to my neck, I need your help then some of those will end with, but we know that you are with us, God, and your love is true and your promises made and held, and then some just stay angry. But anger is an emotion that's okay for us as humans. Even Christ got angry several times in the ministry as we know it. Again, as long as it doesn't become destructive, it can be a tool for action. When we say we follow Christ, 
It's also a way that we are to live. And for us to say we follow Christ is for us to live as Christians. So in the midst of this, we can't fully blame or hold in negative circumstance the members of his own crowd because he is telling them that something different is getting ready to happen. Something new, a new perspective. And yes, they are angry. They don't understand. They respond in anger. And if that's where you are in your faith journey, God can take your anger. God can take your sadness. Our God is big enough. A new perspective. You know who has a right to be angry today? New Orleans Saints. That's right. That's right. Now, I'm a Pittsburgh Steeler fan. I used to live in Pittsburgh, but when Pittsburgh's out of it, all my dad's family's from New Orleans. I cheer for the Saints. And those of you who follow professional football know that a few weeks ago when they played the Los Angeles Rams, it came down to the last minute 45. They were down to the 13. Drew Brees and the Saints had the football. They were about to score. They throw it. The receiver comes out and gets plowed by the receiver. Nowhere near catching the ball. Why? Because the defender laid him out. We would call that pass interference. The world has called that pass interference. The referees did not call that pass interference. And had they had the call, they would have been first down at the six. They would have had four fresh downs where they could run off the rest of the clock. But since they didn't call it and there was no call, they kicked a field goal, got ahead, but then the Rams came back, tied it up, went into overtime, and they lost in overtime. Now, nothing's a guarantee, but it is one of the greatest no-calls in the history of professional football. In listening to them talk, they had every right to be angry. The Saints isn't one of those teams that goes to the Super Bowl every year. They've only won once, once in their franchise history, 2010, still with Drew Brees as quarterback, Sean Payton as coach. You could see the anger at first. Why didn't they call it? How come we went 10 days without Roger Goodell, the president, responding to this? But Drew Brees, complete class act. He's just turning 40, although had one of his best seasons yet. Said, you know what? We can't control this. Yes, there was a mistake, but these guys are human too, these referees. There's no scandal. There's no collusion it was a mistake, and yes, sometimes it works in your favor. This time it didn't, but it's, he said, this is the hardest call in the history of my career. But he said, we're going to get better. I'm excited about our team. We're going to learn from this. We're going to find a way forward, and next year we're going to come back, and we're going to be the team that makes it this year. Not bad, not bad. 
had every right to be angry. The team could have gotten together and picketed and led, led the city of New Orleans in all kinds of protests and ugly negativity. But instead said, yes, a little upset about that, but at the end of the day, this is the game and we will do better next time. Tough. Especially when you know you're right, when somebody's done you wrong, not to live your life in anger, we know that that's hard. And again, these people had every right to be angry with Jesus, but the perspective is different here. Because Jesus is saying, it's not about what used to be. We're not getting rid of the Old Testament, but things are getting ready to change. My suggestion is as we move forward with new perspective for this new year, as Jesus is telling them things are going to change from the way that they have been. Still love you, dear friends, but that love is going to go out farther than we ever thought. We may not even like the fact that God's love transcends our bounds. That was Job's problem. It was Jonah's problem. Remember, it wasn't all about the whale so much as it was. He didn't want the Ninevites to be saved by God because they were bad people and they were Gentiles. But God said, nope, you go tell them they need to change their ways, and they do, and they did. Same thing here. A new perspective Jesus places in front of them, and it is hard, and it is challenging, and it is difficult. But if we are doing this discipleship thing right, we are seeking not only the love and those parts where we know that Christ is with us and the parts that inspire us and hold us, but also the parts that challenge us to say things are going to be or meant to be different. We're all human beings, which means we put people in boxes. Fine. It's fine as long as you don't seal the box and tape it up. Open it up, and as you know people more so, especially as you know Christ, as you study, as you have experiences, as you grow with this community of faith, more goes into the box, so it grows. How many times has someone died in this community, or your family, or your workplace, or in your world, and you get to the memorial service, and you look at the obituary, you hear people sharing stories, and you think, I had no idea this person did that or did that or that this person loved this or this person was into that or this person experienced that or that. I dare say it happens almost every time. You had a box for that person and yet there's so much more that wasn't put in there. The same is true of Christ. And Christ is saying you better leave that box open, friends, because a new perspective is being called on. I'm going to ask you to come along, and I'm going to ask others to come along as well. And with Naaman, who again, who was that Syrian military leader, it would be equivalent to God coming here, to Christ coming here, standing here and say, members of First Presbyterian Church, God did not help you, but God healed a radical Muslim in another country. That's why they were so angry, among other things, and hard for us to understand. 
So as we move forward, today is about broadening our perspective of recognizing that Christ is saying new things are being called for. And for us to keep it trapped, Christ will not be trapped in our box, not the box of Israel, not the box of our complacent hearts, but rather our call becomes to spread this word no matter where we go to whomever we come into contact with. All people on this earth were created by God, therefore we are part of the same human family, therefore we need to share what we know about the love and grace of Jesus Christ. So as we move forward today, know that we are being called to new perspectives in Christ in our faith journey. If we are content and we've got our box of faith sealed up, then we are meant to open that and continue to allow ourselves to be pushed. And know that healthy anger can motivate us, can be helpful, not destructive anger, but those things we love can drive us to help others. So as we move forward this morning, we know that of the greatest of these, faith, hope, and love, love is the greatest of these. So let us go forth, let us be led, and let us celebrate our relationship with Christ. Hallelujah. Amen.